Well, good morning, church. You guys all right? Man, that is something. Just uh, being with you all as we declare the beauty of just saying to each other, saying to God, hearing from each other, all hail King Jesus, yeah? I mean, is he worthy of our praise or what? So no doubt he is, no doubt, a hundred percent, I'm with you. And yet I would offer this to you, that at the point that you and I are absolutely certain that we know how worthy he is, we have but a shadow of his true worthiness. Isn't that crazy? That just when we go, I got it, you're so worthy, it's insane, my mind is blown you will encounter another piece of his word, another piece of his revelation and go, oh, you worthier, you worthier. And then we will live and we will encounter and it will be you are worthier. And then we will die and we will show up and we will go, oh, you are worthier still. Because there is no end to the beauty of the discovery we get to make in a lifetime of pursuit of discovering the depths of his true worthness because he is exalted above anything we have capacity to imagine, let alone know. That is the Jesus we are pursuing. And today is no exception to what Paul is going to bring to our table as he writes to the church in Philippi about the extraordinary nature of the exaltation and worthiness of Christ and our encounter with that. So this week I had the opportunity to sit at a, another high school soccer game, uh, which I love to go watch. My daughter plays on the girls' soccer team at her school. My son plays uh, on this, uh, the boys' soccer team at his school. And they were, have moved their way through into the regional space. So they are competing at a high level now against other high-level teams. And last night was the regional quarterfinals. Um, and meeting on the field were two schools, both of which foundationally function with a Christian worldview and unapologetically say we are Christian schools and in the stands were all of the Christian parents <laughs> and that is something to behold watching a bunch of Christian parents try to be Christian <laughs> while their kids are competing on a field and they want to win worse than the kids do and I, I offer that not just in terms of observation, but in terms of internal experience, right? I mean, I'm sitting there in the stands and I'm like, that ref, what's up? And you're like, Christian, Christian, you a Christian? <laughs> and then there's some parent next to you that's apparently also a Christian. And then they forget for a second. And then you forget for a second because you want to be like, what kind of a Christian is that? And then you say something to which should be answered. Oh, you follow Jesus, apparently. <laughs> wow. How do we encounter moments where everything in us is colliding with the realities of this world and we want to try to follow Jesus in it? And that's a soccer game. We live in a cultural context right now where it's not a soccer game. We don't go to ice cream afterwards. We have a culture that is reshaping and redefining deep and important things that are beginning to stand against the realities of the kingdom of God. 
They are demanding a redefinition of things that will cause what God said to seem like an affront and seem like it is wrong. And we as adults are struggling with how we engage this culture and how we articulate the realities of God's way in a culture that is beginning more and more to define God's way as an oppression and as an assault on humanity. And we're trying to raise our kindergartners in this environment. And they're supposed to articulate their positions that we gave them in a kindergarten way with an adult teacher in the room. And we're trying to think, how on earth do we encounter a world where is the culture stands in opposition to God's kingdom more and more, and we stand for God's kingdom, and we're not sure how to navigate that. Anybody else feel that way? Anybody else trying to raise kids and going, please God help? My wife and I often drive and we're like, what, what do we do? How do, where do we even begin? This is the exact question that the people in Philippi were asking of Paul. They were the church in a city that was the embodiment of the culture of Rome, uh, where Caesar and loyalty to Caesar was a massive thing. And they were trying to engage this culture with the beauty of Jesus and the beauty of the kingdom of God, but found that it more often didn't come across as beauty, but came across as an affront and as enemy to Caesar and to that culture. And they were the recipients of persecution. And they're saying, Paul, how on earth are we to live this out as believers in this space? And Paul is writing back to them in the book of Philippians, the letter to the church in Philippi. And in chapter one, Paul starts with a reminder of our calling that we are not called now to create a kingdom on this planet for ourselves to try and extract and navigate what we can. We are now called into ambassadors of a bigger, better, beautiful, eternal kingdom. And we are partners in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So whatever you're going to be doing, remember what you are now called to. And then he spends some time saying, and at the end of the day, the way that plays out is that we live our lives in Christ, by Christ, for Christ now, right? This is all about not only a kingdom, but a king. And we look to that king and say, that is our king. And whatever that king does, so we do. Uh, because that king encountered this kingdom just as hostile toward him as we might encounter this kingdom when we bring his kingdom to bear, right? And so he came in and he lived. What do we do? And then Paul said, okay, let's get to business. What did our king do? How did our king encounter the world? And how are we to watch that and then engage in that? And in chapter two, he says, what I need you to know as followers of Jesus, what I as a follower of Jesus am pressing into is this, that I want my attitude and my way and my actions to be the same as that of my king. Pretty simple, isn't it? I mean, it really does, doesn't it? It really simplifies. It says, just look to your king and whatever his attitude was, whatever he did, however he thought about this, do those things and then you will live not only like your king, but you will encounter this world as he encountered it and you will see what he brought to bear on this world, brought to bear through your life. 
And then it says, okay, so what was the attitude of our king? And in Philippians chapter two, Paul breaks into preaching. Do you know what preaching is? Preaching is what the black church brings to us better than any other cultural context I've yet found as far as the variety of cultures out there. When a black pastor is preaching and he starts getting excited, he doesn't do what the white guy does by just getting louder. I just get louder. I'm like, and then my wife says, man, you were shouting a lot today. I'm like, I was so excited. But in the black church, he begins to sing his sermon. And you're just like, oh, can we dance while you? And apparently you can. It's awesome, <laughs> right? So Paul breaks into sing preaching because he moves from writing uh, sort of a letter and he, and he dives into a hymn. He, he starts laying out a hymn and, and says, I, I want you to feel as the church in Philippi, me break into kind of song here and say, who is this king we follow? Then he breaks into a hymn about Jesus. And in this hymn that he writes in Philippians that we've been spending time in, he starts unpacking for us in this hymn that Christ, when he came as a human being, he came into flesh, into our world as Emmanuel, the one with us. And in that step, he humbled himself or took on humiliation. Are you with me? So this whole entire hymn begins to say, look at what his attitude was. He has rights, does he not? Can he exercise those rights? Yes, and his rights, are they tied to his position, power, and authority? Yes, he is the king of kings, the God of gods, the creator and sustainer of all things. He holds within his hands all right. And his right is a prerogative, which we talked about, the right that is given to you by position, power, or authority. But yet, this hymn says, when he came to us, he emptied himself of those prerogatives, those rights, so that he could be with us and serve us. So here, the one who is to be served by right, by position, by authority, comes to serve. So there's where the hymn starts. And then he says, not only did he come to serve, no, 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 he served at the cost of his rights many times because he had the right to demand glory, to demand worship, and yet he gave of himself, demanding nothing here while in the flesh. And then, no, wait, wait for it. Not only that, but then he handed himself over to us so that we might crucify him. And so the, the, the hymn says, oh, not only did he empty himself of his prerogatives, his rights, but even obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the reason cross, because he did not just die for us. He let us kill him. You with me with so far? Okay, so we've covered all this ground now. Here we are. Okay. And now Paul does something absolutely wondrous, absolutely extraordinary. He says, therefore, now that's a really big word, isn't it? In scripture, that's a really big word. Why? Because whenever the word therefore is used, what do we know therefore means? That there's something behind it that he's about to connect the following thought to. The following thought does not stand alone. The following thought is a direct consequence of what has happened. So he's saying, because Christ stepped into humility and into humiliation and humbled himself 
to serve us, to be with us, to die for us, to redeem us because he entered a hostile world and engaged us with love and with grace instead of with power and death, right? Something happens. Therefore, what is the therefore? Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians, which is where we are. And let's go look at where Paul takes us after the therefore. So we are, we are sitting there and he says in um, verse nine, therefore, therefore, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So something occurs. Watch this now. In Christ's choice to step into humiliation by emptying himself of his rights for our sake and the sake of our redemption, the result of that as far as it relates to Christ is that there is an exaltation. There is an exalting of Christ because of his stepping into humiliation. Now look at this. This is really important. Uh, Paul is speaking into a culture where exaltation is the result of you, the person, chasing after, grabbing hold of, and pursuing greater power, authority, honor. Everything is about the more powerful I become, the more I have rights that are bigger than yours, the more exalted I am. Caesar is the ultimate example of that. The most powerful person with the most rights who demands those rights and therefore has exaltation. And here Paul says, in our kingdom, exaltation comes from the pursuit of power. But in God's kingdom, it is the pursuit of serving, of saving, of being humble that results in an exaltation. And so now he's starting to set a kingdom dynamic here by showing us what happened to Christ. But we're about to discover how and why that happened to Christ, which allows us as followers of Jesus to kind of go, oh, oh, that's why I need to give myself to serving others on Christ's behalf and, wait for it, for us also to go, oh, oh, that's how worthy he actually is. Wait for it, it's coming. So he says this, since he became flesh, became human, humbled himself, obedient to death, therefore he was exalted and was given the name that is like no other above every name. When we first read this, we often think that what this means is that his name, Jesus, was moved from being regular to being exalted. He had a name, Jesus. And now suddenly, because of his humility, Jesus just became Jesus. You know what I'm saying? That's my way of kind of sh shifting them. But the interesting thing is that as you look at this passage, what you begin to find and what clues us in is what comes next because Paul does what he always does is he ties to Old Testament things to show us what he's up to. It seems what he's saying here is there was a name he's, he's had his name is Jesus, right? And when was he given the name Jesus? At birth. So he's had that one. But now, because of this incredible work of redemption, humility, humbling himself, serving... 
He is given the name that is, in fact, above every other name. What name is above every other name? What name stands alone? What name leaves no room for another? What name cannot be taken by anyone? Only one, and that is the name of God himself when given to Moses, Yahweh, right? I am alone in my name. Now, what Paul's going to do is he is going to use the book of Isaiah, where God is dealing with this name that stands alone, and he's going to tie a part of Isaiah that ties to the standalone nature of his name in this passage to show us the name that was given Christ in his humiliation, in his humbleness, is in fact the name that is only one name. It is not that he became that, but we suddenly discover in his journey, he was that. This is Paul's way of continuing the track that he started in this hymn that when Jesus became human, did he diminish his divinity at all? No. Did he empty himself of any part of his divinity? No. Any attributes of his divinity? No. He emptied himself of his prerogatives, his rights, not his divinity. And now Paul's going to nail, uh, put a nail in that coffin and say, oh, when he was fully man, he was always completely and totally also fully God. And the name Jesus given to him as man is in fact now a name that is so intricately connected to the one and only name that is for God that you can interchange them. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. So he says, I have bestowed upon him the name that is above every other, that is a standalone name. In the book of Isaiah, in chapter 42, this is where we encounter one of the spaces where God declares his name as standalone. And the reason this particular passage is important is because it is the beginning of a section of Isaiah that will end in a part where God describes what this name then demands. And it all ties into what Paul's writing. Listen to this, Isaiah chapter 42. Listen to how God says this. He's speaking through Isaiah and he says, I am the Lord, the Hebrew word there, Yahweh. I am Yahweh the one and only, then he says, that is my name. It's kind of an interesting sentence, isn't it? I am Yahweh, that is my name. Okay, thanks for clarifying. He wasn't clarifying. He was making a statement. I am Yahweh, and I am the only one whose name that is. That's actually how that sentence comes across. And that is only my name. Not your name. You can't have this name. This is the name that stands by itself. And whose name is it? It is God's name. How do we know he's saying that? Because it doesn't say that, Reno. It says, I am the Lord, that is my name. How do you know it says only? Read the next sentence. My glory I give to no other. <laughs> so God's like, okay, let's talk about this name I have, Yahweh. This is my name. I am Yahweh. No one else is. No one else ever will be. And I share that name with no one. That is the name that is above all names. And now Paul writes and says, in the Christ man who was God, when he humbled himself, there we saw something and he was exalted to the name that is above every name. Now watch what Paul writes next in Philippians. And this is where we clue in to what he's saying. Uh, Philippians, here we go. Listen, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now watch this. This is so crazy. Sorry. I love when this happens. Okay, watch how, he, watch how he shows us the worthiness of Christ and the divinity of Christ while literally showing us that his divinity was exalted further by his humanity, that we knew more of his divinity by his humanity. Not that he became more, but that we saw him as more. Are you with me so far? He goes like this. I've given him the name that is above every name, the name Yahweh, so that by the name of what? Jesus. So wouldn't it be logical that there you would say by the name of Yahweh, but he goes that by the name of Jesus, what should happen? Every knee should bow and every tongue confess. So in Isaiah, upside down, uh, Isaiah <laughs> chapter 40, uh, 45, Isaiah 42, he says, this is my name, only my name, and I share it with no one. Then he talks through Isaiah to his people about a bunch of stuff. And in Isaiah 45, just a little further on, he's kind of closing out this thought. And then he says this, listen to this. Isaiah 45, verse 23. By myself or by my own name, I swear. So God's like, whose name has the power that when I make a promise by this name, there is no breaking it? My name, my name. So whose name am I going to make this promise by? My name. So how sure can you be of this promise? Absolutely. Now look what he says. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. Watch. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So look what Paul's doing. He's taking an Old Testament clarity that we have. Who has every knee bow and every tongue confess? God. God Yahweh. And then he goes like this, Jesus, in his humbling himself, becoming flesh, God stepping into flesh, at first seems in our world's version as a step down. But in stepping down and becoming a servant to redeem and serve, we got a greater clarity of his exaltation of his worthiness. What makes us know God's love like nothing else? His humanity, his coming, his Emmanuel, his serving, his giving, his healing, his saving, his dying, his rising from the dead. You remember Peter, when Peter entered into the cave after Jesus's body left? What did all the disciples think Jesus was before his death and resurrection? They thought he was a man sent of God like Moses to save us, like God sent someone else and gave them power. You with me? God is our God, Yahweh. He's gonna send someone to save us and he's gonna empower that person to save us. Is that cool? That's cool, I love it. Moses was like that, but was it bigger than that? How was it bigger than that? Did he send someone? No, he came for us. He didn't send a third party. He rolled in, became flesh and said, I'm right here. So look what Paul's doing right now. He's saying, do you understand that in what seemed to be a humiliation, a lowering, 
of becoming less is in fact where we were able to see him more, bigger, better, know his love like no other. And so he's saying this, in Christ's coming to save you, his name exalted, which name? Jesus, to actually be the same name as another, Yahweh. He's tying the two together. That's why he doesn't say, bestowed upon him was the name Yahweh, and by the name Yahweh, every knee shall bow. He's already said that. He's saying this, Yahweh is, Jesus is, Yahweh is Jesus. Jesus was the name given at birth as God became flesh, but it turns out Jesus was actually always God. And so he is the exalted one. And we discovered that when Peter stood at the cave, thinking Jesus was one sent of God. And remember what he said when he came out of the cave? Peter marveled at all that he had heard because he suddenly knew, this man is in fact God. Jesus is Yahweh. Yahweh is Jesus. And so here, what Paul tells us is, if you want to follow Jesus and you want to live in his kingdom, you start with this. When the world tells you that the way you will find exaltation is through grabbing for position and power, that is the way of Caesar, the way of the world, the way of kingdoms, the way of people, and they grow like the grass and wither under the sun. But your master brought the greatest exaltation and clarity of who he actually was in his humiliation, service, and saving. And so he became a God that we do not simply worship and stand in awe of and who is worthy because of his power, because of his his distance, because of his separateness but he now also is the God that is worthy of our worship because of his presence, because of his togetherness, because of his likeness to us. He became like us to be with us. And in so doing, we knew him more exalted than ever in his life, death, and resurrection. And so Paul writes, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is, here's the word Lord again, kairos in the Greek, which is translated in Greek language often to Yahweh, to the glory of God the Father. So if you and I are asking the question, God, we have a hostile culture, meaning that it is reordering philosophies, reshaping definitions, rethinking entire structures that you seem to have said are not a part of what is best for humanity. And we have to bring this, what is now crazy truth, to the table to try to say, we love you, he loves you, he loves us, and he is wise, this is wise. And we have a culture that goes, that is not wise, that is offensive, and you are crazy. And you're saying, but, but, but how? And Jesus goes, settle down. Don't rise up in power, but start serving even more beautifully. Humble yourself and come alongside. Share truth without a doubt. Jesus never once ever spoke anything that was not truth, but he spoke it with such love and beauty that even the hardest truths were transformative.
be first the one walking in to feed, first the one walking in to heal, first the one walking in to serve, first the one walking in to bring life, to bring kindness, to bring wonder like I did, first one to humble yourself, first one to put whose needs ahead of your own? The other humans! The evil ones, the terrible ones, the enemy ones, the nice ones, the good ones, the fun ones, the humans, like he did. And then let them see how in God's kingdom it is he who is last that shall be first, he who is servant that shall be master, he who is least that shall be most, he who is humble that will be exalted. It is not a formula to get what we want. It is a declaration of the beauty of the kingdom of God that in our humility, we allow others to see his glory more than we will ever do in our power and pride. So how do we then stabilize ourselves at a soccer game. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I'm going to scream ugly things at someone. How do I stabilize? Or how do we stabilize ourselves when the fear, the real fear of a massive culture standing against us and our children starts creeping in and we're like, gotta rise, gotta fight. How do we stabilize ourselves? We fix our eyes on our king in both his power and his humility, because it is in his humility that he was exalted to his power in the most demonstrative way to us. And since we talked about the power of a pastor singing Jesus to us, not just getting louder, I thought it might be helpful to us today if we had a moment to listen into a beautiful black preacher sing to us of both the separateness of our God and the with us of our God and how the two exalt him to a place of worthiness of our praise. My table is gone. It's magical. <laughs> so that we might not only worship him in word, but worship him with our lives as living sacrifices. Watch this. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartial.
totally merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is lighter. No doubt, no doubt that the God that parted the Red Sea, the God that moves mountains, the God that defeated armies, the God that raises the dead, the God that does things so beyond us that we can't imagine them is worthy of our praise for those things. Amen? But the thing he did that in some ways exalts him the most for us is that he came in humility and served us, saved us, even to the point of death, death on a cross. And Paul says this to you and me, you wanna encounter this crazy world? Then let your attitude be the same as that of your king who could hold all things he has as right and stand separate from you and demand your submission to his truth. But instead, humiliated himself, became man, walked among you, loved you and saved you and died for you while you were his enemies. Be 
like that. And Christ will show himself through you to the world like he showed you himself through his beautiful salvation that he came to give us. Let's pray. God, as we come into this place, wrestling with the day-to-day of our lives and our wrestles and our struggles, our soccer games and our massive fears of changes of philosophy, our relationships, our resources, our dynamics, our insecurities, our desires, our dreams, all the things that fight and push and demand from us to shape and shift the desire to grab a hold of what we can so that we will be okay, so that we will be valuable, so that we will be worthy, so that we will be liked and loved. God, not one of us in this room do not wrestle in those spaces. And we come to you saying, how, how, God, do we begin the journey, keep on the journey of encountering this world in a way that would be life to them, life to us, and glory to you. And we thank you today that you did not just tell us how to do that. You came and did it for us. You showed us the way. And you showed us how in your kingdom it is he or she who serves that displays the greatest exaltation of the power of your kingdom. He or she who humbles that is exalted. He or she who is less that is more, who is last that is first, just as you showed us. So God, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. We bend our knee. We confess with our mouth that you indeed are king. And we ask you to empower us by your spirit to follow you, to serve you publicly, unapologetically, sometimes in a fumbling sort of a way, but doing it together in community so that we might be a people who, like you, have your attitude to serve the world around us while they are hostile toward you and your kingdom and in so doing also then toward us. Make it so for us so that we might bring you glory and show the world who you are, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.